You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. Very nice day outside, lots of things going on. Uh, even though it's very early, there's scatterings of people doing whatever they do at this time of day. Uh, the sun is rising and hopefully you're uh, nice and comfortable for the next uh, hour and a half for uh, 3CR Breakfast. You would have heard on the, uh, if you've been listening to 3CR Breakfast, uh, that the Techno Park story that we brought you about uh, uh, people being kicked out of their houses because uh, Hobson Bay Council said that... Uh, uh, the uh, people living in Techno Park um, were uh, in the wrong zone. Uh, the uh, residents are pretty hopping mad, and uh, we're talking about hundreds of people who are uh, being given forced eviction notices. A thousand five hundred signatures has been collected in three weeks in a petition that online petition that's been out there. The uh, next stage of the uh, uh, campaign is uh, to do a rally on Tuesday the 8th of August, 5.30pm at Logan Reserve in Altona, marching to Altona Civic Centre ahead of the 7pm meeting of the councillors. Uh, There's going to be a motion put forward by Councillor Daria Callaton, a notice of motion to rescind the eviction notices and to investigate all possible solutions to council's planning problems with the aim of keeping people in their homes. No other councillor, apparently including Labor or Greens, has agreed to second this motion. Uh, If they refuse to act, the motion will not even be considered and this is why the rally is being called. It wants to apply pressure to the group. On the issue of uh, housing, uh, I went down to the Greens call out to go to Victorian Parliament on uh, Wednesday, I think it was, uh, to go to uh, listen to the debate uh, in the um, assembly around public housing, uh, and uh, it was quite fascinating. Uh, first up, before we go to that little reflection, we'll hear what happened on the streets of Parliament. Hello, nice to see you again. We're going to try and yell. 
we found out something interesting about that. Folks, let's just gather in closer. We're waiting for our PA system, but we'll, um, we'll just yell as well. the Parliament steps. The Parliament never looks better than when the community is here and thank you to public housing residents, allies and campaigners who have been standing in solidarity with the incredible Margaret Kelly for months on end now to save Barrack Beacon Estate and to save public housing right across Victoria. I'd like to acknowledge we're meeting on Wurundjeri land and pay our deep respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty over this land has never been ceded. We are seeing the government double down on its privatisation agenda with its plans for Barrack Beacon Estate. As many of you know and have joined the campaign to fight against, Barrack Beacon is just the next in a series of privatisations they plan for public housing in Victoria. I was doing a count this morning. I've got to about 18 estates so far they've earmarked for privatisation and we know this is just the beginning of their plans for public housing right across Victoria. Public housing, public housing is in such trouble here in Victoria that you'll be hard pressed to hear the government members ever utter the words public housing in any of the debate in Parliament, on any of the websites, in any of the publicity, the glossy brochures they want to try and manipulate the Victorian public into thinking will be a good thing. But what we know is that these estates two-thirds at least will be handed over to private developers. Once we lose that public housing land, we never get it back. In the midst of a housing crisis, we should be keeping that public housing land so we can get on with building at least 100,000 public homes over the next decade. We know that public housing is really important if you want to solve the housing affordability crisis. Good governments, once upon a time in history, including here in Victoria and Australia, invested in public housing when they knew they had to create more affordable housing. At one point, 22% of the housing built in Australia was public housing. Right now, it's 2.2%. And rapidly declining. So if you wonder why we're in a housing crisis where people can't afford a rent, their rents, they, can't, they have to decide between keeping food on the table or a roof over their heads, you have to look at what's happening with public housing policy. Because when you build thousands more public homes, you take uh, competition in the private uh, housing market out, or you reduce it, which then increases the supply of private rental, which puts downward pressure on prices. So all of this is linked. Everything that we're talking about when it comes to housing in Australia right now, happening at the federal parliament too, is intricately linked and it all boils down to what's happening with public housing. And that's why we thank you, Margaret, for your incredible courage and determination. For not just speaking out about the plight of your community at Barrack Beacon and what is happening to your homes of over two decades, but for speaking out on behalf of all public housing communities who have not been given a voice by this government. But that's about to change in the Parliament in just a few short minutes. We thank you so much for joining with us um, into the Parliament this afternoon where we're forcing the government to talk about public housing, a topic they do not want to raise.
Yeah, that was on the uh, steps of Parliament. That was uh, the voice of Samantha Redden and MP Green, a Greens candidate. It was uh, left to the member of Richmond uh, uh, from the Greens to present their case around uh, the public housing uh, issue. Uh, The... uh, uh, State Labor seemed to voice uh, its only uh, criticism of having to do the debate, uh, aiming for the Greens, saying that really it was just grandstanding on the part of the Greens and they were membership uh, collecting and uh, that was all it was, a uh, rather than uh, an issue of the uh, public housing at all. It's a pretty flimsy uh, debating technique of the Labor um, Party to uh, be sitting there saying ridiculous things around public housing, like uh, we've we've, uh, been building more public housing uh, than ever before, which is not true. Uh, the data just doesn't support it, and uh, Labor uh, said that it's not privatisation; it's a ground leasing model arrangements where they uh, give over public land to private developers for a set amount of time, and then, of course, it reverts to government hands. However, how long is that time? At least twenty-five years, uh, and the plan has already been put into place. Very flimsy, very flimsy indeed. Uh, then uh, someone from uh, the the Labor representative from um, Ballarat talked about uh, the uh, charity model of uh, community housing. No, they're not neo. It's not a neoliberal uh, approach to uh, housing uh, because it's being run by uh, charities. Uh, these people who are running the community and social housing arrangements, uh, but uh, that um, the actual. Uh, idea that they could say in Parliament that uh, they're creating more public housing when in actual fact they're not. But it was a very striking um, reality put forward that uh, Labor's been in uh, government in uh, Victoria for 20 of the the last 24 years. So this process of dismantling uh, the public housing system is in actual fact square in their court but of course deeply supported by the Liberals. It was fascinating to watch because uh, the uh, Labor just thought, uh, acted as if uh, the Greens were insignificant uh, you know you're just grandstanders and they did this performance public performance in the gallery where they were moving around you know pretending they weren't interested but as soon as one of the Liberals got up uh, I can't remember his name but it was you know a of a firecracker, um, obviously one of their stores, uh, and started had a go at them, pointing out that actually only 74 new homes have actually been built since Labor's been in, like 74, that's pretty incredible. Um, they were all a little bit nervous, so obviously the old game plan works. Uh, then a silly liberal got up and talked about how the mum and dad investors weren't uh, uh, were withdrawing from the investment properties and uh, rental market because of the land tax. But as a friend of mine who's a landowner said, uh, a, a landlord said, um, all they do is raise the rent and uh, or uh, negative gear. So it's a spurious argument. So. Uh, debate in averted commas, we'd have to say. Debate in averted commas. Uh, the fact that they were nervous that people were going to actually come to the public gallery and listen to them was pretty fascinating, I'll have to say. Uh, it, they didn't persuade me that uh, they weren't 
already completely uh, bound up with the public-private um, partnership arrangements and that they have taken up the entirely embraced the UK model of divesting government's responsibility to public housing uh, and uh, the cheap trick of pretending that uh, community uh, social and affordable housing equate to uh, dealing with the problems uh, that uh, public housing is the only method of uh, dealing with it, um, as in suppressing rents, that sort of stuff that has a flow-on effect to the general population um, because the government can actually have a lever in that sort of area uh, of uh, maintenance, just giving it over to the hands of uh, lazy capitalists that have been running this country for so long uh, is a ludicrous notion. Um, but, you know, they're wearing suits. They're wearing the suits. Uh, there we go. Um, the uh, You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, we're going to move on to something completely different. Uh, I was listening to a webinar coming out of the UK. It's uh, a War on Want. Um, fascinating conversation. What they were talking about was... Um, indivisible justice, migration and the climate crisis. They're moving to try and get the two um, a action uh, groups to uh, coalesce because of how many things that are happening in the sphere of climate and uh, the movements of people who are uh, more and more uh, being undermined because of the climate crisis. Uh, this is a, a chat from a young woman called Michaela Loach. She's the author of It's Not that radical climate action to transform our world. So let's have a hear from um, Michaela. Our next uh, panellist, uh, both of her admits here are youth activists who came from youth movements that really brought a new energy and, and really reimagined the politics of intersectionality that builds on the work of so many of our movements have done. Uh, I'm really pleased that we have Michaela Loach, who's a great organiser, uh, writes, uh, focuses on these intersections of the climate crisis and how they intertwine with inter oppressive systems and also about how we make our climate movement a much more accessible space. Uh, I'm sure you've picked up her book. She's like an amazing author of the Not That Radical, The Climate Action to Transform Our World, but uh, also comes with a, uh, was a former medical student and has got a degree in global health policy. Um, and uh, so often I think in our, in our struggles, we, 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 we know we have many fights to fight. But we don't celebrate the victories that we do have. And it was great back in 2021, um, the Stop Campbell Oilfield campaign, which Michaela was part of that very successful campaign, and also was one of the three claimants on the Paid to Pollute case, which took the UK government to court over the huge amounts of public subsidies that were being handed over to fossil fuel campaigners every year. Um, Really pleased Michaela is here with us. I know she's not been well and she's just literally just uh, uh, agreed to pop on to, to, to contribute. So thank you again, Michaela, for making the time. And now over to you. No, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, sorry, everyone. Um, I am not going to be on top form, but I'm really grateful to be here. And thank you all, everyone, for being here. I'm just, just in a fair bit of pain, but it's all right. We're going we're gonna to get through this. Um, not get through it, we're going to enjoy it because it's important. And this is a very, very important topic. So thank you all um, yeah, so much for taking your time out on a Thursday evening to come and listen um, to all these incredible speakers who I feel incredibly humbled to be um, put along with. Um, 
in this. And I'm going to be talking a bit about climate justice. And I thought I would start um, with how I got into this movement, because for my for me, getting into the climate movement was actually through a lens of migrant justice. So I was born in Jamaica, um, a small island in the Caribbean that, despite our like very small size, has had a very big impact on the world. And so people do actually know where it is. Um, and moved to the UK when I was about two and a half years old, three years old. And growing up in the UK um, as a black woman, as a black person in the UK, um, I experienced obviously a lot of racism um, in lots of different ways, a lot of interpersonal racism in particular, um, and structural more as I got older. Um, but it, but I could see that this world is not the best as it could be. Um, and then I remember very clearly um, the moment that I I kind of got radicalised, I guess, was um, a moment that many people will probably remember, a really harrowing moment. So um, just, I guess, a true warning for um, the, I'm really talking a bit about Alan Curdy um, and the photograph of um, a three-year-old Syrian boy's body washed up on a beach in Greece. Um, and I remember seeing that photo and thinking about the fact that when I was around the same age, I was able to move to the UK safely and easily and legally just because of the privilege of having a British father and a white British father in particular. And that that same privilege and, and luck of, of, of birth and of position was not offered or not allowed for Alan or his family. And I just really could not let go of that feeling that um, if, yeah, if it had been a different island that I was born on, if it had been a different circumstance I was born into, um, it could have been me and my family in that in that situation. And the unfairness of it um, really hit me whilst I was um, a teenager and so got involved with migrant justice organising in Calais in particular, um, just doing very material things of, of chopping wood and baking things and cooking food for people. Um, and that, that really first showed me that to, to be an activist or to do activism is just to be active in the face of an issue that you see. Um, but also that really illuminated to me um, for like, yeah, um, how much um, the kind of legacy of and the persistent legacy of colonialism um, is the reason why so many people are um, are displaced in the first place. And therefore that there's a huge responsibility that we have as people who, who live in the core of the empire um, to have an impact on that, not only the policies on our border, but also the policies that have put people in those situations in the first place and addressing, addressing that harm. Um, and so if I, yeah, so I wasn't really into climate at that point, because I think like many people um, who are racialized um, as, or racialized as, as, as black in particular, um, I felt like there were more pressing issues in particular that migrant justice is a more pressing issue than the climate crisis. And I still at that point saw them as, as quite separate. Um, that police brutality is a more pressing issue, that um, that there are, that poverty is a more pressing issue for my community in particular. Um, and I felt like the climate crisis was just for like, to be honest, middle-class white people who had nothing better to worry about. And it was only actually um, when I was on in Calais and, and having conversations with people um, who were displaced and realizing how many of their situations not just was because of colonialism but also because of the climate crisis and realizing that the climate crisis is just going to make insecurity for people globally even even worse and, and realizing about the, um, climate justice in particular and its legacy of colonialism that these that it's not the great equalizer that we're told it is it's actually the great multipliers as Mitzi spoke on so brilliantly and that it multiplies the existing ways people are oppressed that I became passionate about the climate crisis um, and tackling it um, and realized um, that it is a, a very pressing and important issue today and for communities today as well as, and it's not just this kind of existential threat of the future. Um, 
and also in, um, I went back to Jamaica um, to see my family and a beach that I grew up going to, um, Helsha Beach. I don't know if anyone's, there's always Jamaicans in any event I've ever done because um, we are everywhere. Um, but people will probably know about Helsha Beach. And I kind of grew up going to that beach very frequently. Um, and then going back to Jamaica um, and visiting my grandmother and going back to that beach, um, I saw that it's almost completely disappeared. And I actually moved back to Jamaica last year and, um, and spent a bit of time in Helsha. Um, and my grandmother lives about 10 minutes drive from that beach. Um, so many communities live in that area, much more proximal. And if, if that beach is already disappeared now, if when I drove around the island in Jamaica, um, you can see the water levels of where flooding is hit, especially on the coastal communities. Um, those Im- impacts are already happening now. What's it going to be like in, in 10 or 20 years if we don't if we don't take adequate action? And important thing, if we don't take adequate action, because action is happening, but in, in the wrong way, often on climate. Um, So, yeah, climate justice is the great equaliser. It's not the great equaliser, it's the great multiplier. So, for example, humans in poorer countries are around five times more likely than those in richer countries to be displaced by sudden extreme weather disasters. And even in that, we need to interrogate why are countries poor or rich in the first place? What do we mean by those markers? And Michael Prenti um, says that countries are not poor, they are overexploited. And I would say that countries in in that sense are not rich, they overexploit. And so there's a relationship there. Um, So it's not just because of geography that certain countries are made made more vulnerable. It's also because of these historical um, relationships between the global north and global south. So whilst we might be in the same storm, um, we are not in the same boat. Um, some of us are in like giant ocean liners that have been funded by colonial wealth and then others have been forced into unseaworthy rafts who've had their resources stripped away from them in order to build these huge colonial liners that um, that protect others and that relationship is really important for us for us to understand um, in both the creation of the climate crisis and the impacts that are being felt today. So climate justice demands that we interrogate the foundations of this world um, that created the climate crisis in the first place, these foundations of, of whiteness, which is a, a power system. It's not just that um, we talk about environmental racism, which I'll talk about a bit later. I think people sometimes think that, um, also, sorry, very kind that people are saying nice things in the chat. I'm, I'm going to try and focus there. But um, it, I think sometimes people think that when we talk about these power systems, that it's, oh, well, you know, the climate doesn't care about what someone looks like or what their features are or their heritage. Um, but it's not that pollution is, is following people because it doesn't like them. It's because it's about power systems and that prioritise some lives and deprioritise others and therefore put some lives in, in deliberately into precarity and vulnerability um, and protect other lives. Um, and so, for example, I've talked about the global north and global south a little bit, and I would, I would love to touch on that more. But I'm going to use some UK examples um, even within the UK. So there's obviously this like this in the different impacts of where countries are geographically in global north and global south but even within countries like the uk and the global north um how people are like positioned in in our hierarchies under whiteness and, and capitalism um people experience oppression differently um and therefore they impact are impacted by the climate crisis differently um so for example black communities in the uk are particularly more likely to be um situated next to incinerators and next to dangerously high levels of air pollution um for example the example that i use um in my book is about um Edmonton because my the Jamaican side of my family who came over to the so my grandma stayed in Jamaica but the part her brothers that came to the UK um in the 70s um they moved to an area called Edmonton that a lot of people obviously know in, in London and 
in that area in London, it has 65% of the population are people of colour. It's also one of the most deprived areas um, of the UK. Um, and it also is the, this, the site of the largest incinerator, waste incinerator in the UK, the Edmonton Eco Park incinerator. Um, and it's not just Edmonton where incinerators that cause dangerous levels of air pollution are situated. And um, this trend is seen across the UK. And it's also, again, it's not just um, in this situation, it's not just um, race, it's also about class and also about um, yeah, what communities are seen as are seen as or situated as more disposable and allowed for these kind of harmful um infrastructure to be deeper next to them. So whilst so it's a it's in the global north as, as well as as well as globally. Um, but that might all seem really serious and, and scary and, and sad. And I think I'll talk a bit about fear in a moment. Um, but what, what got me into the climate movement um, and didn't take me away from the migrant justice movement, more like incorporated climate into the work that I was already doing to try and um, tackle systems of oppression. It wasn't just the fear. It wasn't just the amplification of, of oppression. It wasn't just the amplification of, of inequality. It was this realisation that as the climate crisis has has come from these same systems that have caused um, harm to different people over and currently, materially and also historically, um, then to tackle it adequately, we also have to tackle these same systems. And therefore, in that way, climate justice gets to be a portal into a better world, a portal into a new world, an opportunity to transform everything, an opportunity to really tackle these issues finally. So by tackling the root, these root causes of whiteness, capitalism, colonialism, we can create a more equitable and transformed world for all of us. And we have to remember that the elite class don't want us to do this. Um, they want to distract us and divide us. They want us to demonise people who have the same interests as us in, in creating this better world. They want us to focus on those who are already marginalised rather, rather than realising that it's those who have a huge amount of power that have caused this crisis. And they're scared of our power when we come together. They're scared of us recognising these connections that we have between migrant justice and climate justice in particular. Um, and we always have to ask when we're seeing communities being demonised in the news or or anywhere or even within our groups, when we when we hear people say that to talk about um, issues of justice is diluting the movement or diluting the message. We have to ask it, who does this serve? Who does that narrative um, that these issues are too much or too distracting or too complicated. Like who is benefiting from that narrative? And I think that who's benefiting from that is the elite class. And I'd ask you at any moment, always ask, like, who does this serve? And we have to also remember um, that all climate action is not climate justice. It is very possible for us to take climate action that makes a more unequal world. That that's um, a kind of so that would be called eco-fascism in particular. So it's very possible for us to take climate action that increases austerity, that causes more harm to people who are already experiencing a huge amount of oppression, already being forced to, to live with less. That is very possible. And also it's important to recognise that um, climate action is going to happen at some point. Um, and so what the climate movement's role needs to be is, is not only when that happens, but how it happens and, and, and what world are we going to be um, creating? What is that world that comes next going to look like? Are we going to go down the route of eco-fascism in which um, yeah, people have caused more harm? Or are we going to take this portal into a new world in which all of us get to live in dignity, all of us get to be safe, and we actually can address these inequalities and these oppressions? And I think that we climate justice requires us to come together and demand more, knowing that not only we can create this better world and this, this transformed world, um, but that we must, because the alternative of this of eco-fascism is, is so deeply terrible that we have to turn away from it. Um, and we also have to realise that to 
to incorporate the reality of this world, to realise that there is no single issue struggle because we don't live single issue lives, as, as the great Audre Lord said, um, is not to make our movements weaker, but to make them stronger. It is, it is for us to actually be finally tackling the real roots of, 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 this, of this crisis, um, rather than um, just putting a Band-Aid on an, on an issue whilst the rot is still there. We need to treat that kind of internal rot in the same way as yeah, I was a former medical student. Um, when someone come, if someone came in and was and had heart pain or chest pain, not heart pain, they wouldn't say heart pain, they had chest pain and I gave them a painkiller, um, but didn't treat any of that heart disease that's causing that in the first place they're going to keep coming in with more manifestations of that disease that same thing can happen with our world if we take climate action that just addresses emissions it's like giving a um a painkiller to someone with heart disease what we need to actually do is treat the disease in our world which is whiteness and capitalism and imperialism and colonialism um and to do that makes our movement stronger not weaker and to do that creates a world where all of us um are safe and live in dignity um and i think to do that is also to create a movement that is exciting for people to join um and also to do that does not have to we need to our role as well is to communicate that as not being outrageous or ridiculous or too radical as some people would frame it but as the common sense that it is the common sense that that all of us want to be safe the common sense that these this crisis did come from these issues and therefore to tackle it adequately we have to tackle these issues too well what a great speech uh, michaela loach um she's the author of a book called it's not that radical climate action to transform our world it was part of a webinar war on want uh, indivisible justice, migration and the climate crisis coming out of the UK. You'll be able to get the whole uh, of that uh, uh, online, uh, the whole of the, um, the webinar. But that particular speech was fantastic. What a line. We might be in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. Never a truer word spoke. Man, hush what they say now. Ooh, ooh. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Go with the fellas, whatever the weather. We got drinks with umbrellas. You got time to wine, keep them down in the cellar. We got time to shine, do that shit at Coachella. Throwing brunches and lunches, lunches and crunches. Living life in abundance, don't really worry about nothing. Then I pull up, hop out, wave at that cop now. Stop sign, ran that, oh that fine, that's not out. And hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Oh, oh, oh. My life is incredible. Miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. It's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque, man, it's okay. To be opaque. 
got your girl a new handbag. Ooh. I'm living like I got my land I got back. them tin and bintangs. Chewies and skip pants. Oh. Very vocal. Let's smoke over. Tell them all my big plans on how we head to Bali smoking Cuban cigars. Oh. And we fuck up the party like acoustic guitars. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Uh, that Briggs. Um, <laughs> you're back with Annie on uh, Solidarity Breakfast. Every time I listen to that song, Life is Incredible, uh, it just uh, is a real blast. On the uh, phone, we've got uh, Fleur Murphy. She's a fantastic local playwright. G'day, Fleur. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. I was really impressed by your CV. Coming from country Victoria myself, I, it's really nice to know that there are people out there who actually get the voice of the uh, world that's outside the city. Yeah, um, I guess, yeah, I grew up in um, kind of central Victoria and, um, yeah, I, I think being exposed to a lot of diverse, wonderful kind of theatre and arts and creativity when I was younger, even though I came from a family, um, you know, weren't particularly made up of artists, um, I think just as an access point into learning more about our wider world, it was, um, yeah, it was an, an eye-opener and it has always, I guess, yeah, been part of what has made me want to tell stories and be involved in theatre. Yeah, because it's a funny thing, isn't it, coming from a country town and then coming to the city because you're a visitor looking in and that is a very theatrical approach, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. And actually I feel like that's something that's um, becoming uh, quite a common little thread, um, uh, you know, with a lot of the work that I've done kind of more recently. Um, Half that I did last year was um, about a family who lives in King Lake, but one of the, the younger sons was wanting to move to Melbourne and his older brother already lived there. So, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of line, isn't it? Like where where does the, the, um, the country kind of end and the city start? And I think that whole area is really rich for um, exploring. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the... the uh in fact, uh, there's a lot of things to talk to you about, but we originally uh, started this uh, 
uh, idea of talking together because of the play that's um, on or coming on uh, next week, starting on Thursday next week, called The Fence. And it's going to be at this uh, at the Northcote Theatre, Northcote uh, um, Play yeah, Town Hall. Tall, yeah. yeah, Town Hall. Yeah. Tell, tell us about the theatre, uh, about the um, fence and uh, what it's all about. Yeah, sure. Um, so the fence is uh, a, a one-woman play, um, and it's told through the lens of a character who we just refer to as woman in the play. Um, she's a, a 30-something kind of wife and mum. She lives on those outer northern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, and one day, a demolished fence uh, between her house and her neighbour's house um, starts to expose some, um, you know, unsettling secrets and the boundaries between, I guess, neighbours starts to kind of uh, blur a little bit. And then this compels her to have to eventually navigate the delicate line that exists between observation and intervention. Yeah, yeah, the fascinating uh, uh, real-world dissection of uh, your role as an individual versus your role as being part of a, a society. Yeah, definitely. And um, like this, I guess this play um, does look at the more kind of, I guess, personal, individual kind of um, experience. Uh, but it certainly does speak to a much, um, a much bigger, you know, issue that we are kind of dealing with um, in terms of family violence and um, and other kind of gender issues as well. So um, yeah. But hopefully told through, um, you know, a much more kind of personal lens, it kind of is a a lovely way to kind of, um, you know, bring an audience in to kind of talk about and think about an issue in a way that feels um, safe and accessible for them. Yeah, percolating uh, under the skin of society, this uh, violence. Uh, It's interesting because I was telling somebody about some horrible thing that happened. Uh, in, it was in the news and it was about mm. a man who shot his wife and his daughter as they're unpacking their groceries over in Adelaide. And she, and she works in social welfare, the person I was talking to, and she just rose her eyebrows and said, it happens every day, every week in this country. And I was thinking, that is such a shocking reality. Yeah, yeah, there are some very sobering statistics. Um, you know, uh, it's you know on average one woman every week in Australia, um, and on average uh, one man every month. So it's they're heartbreaking, and you know they're not just numbers; they are people. It's people's lives. So um, yeah, I think it's important that you know, I think art can play a really lovely role in um, in sharing stories and and being. Um, an advocate in a way that, um, you know, doesn't necessarily feel like it's uh, scary or, you know, super political in a way that, that might kind of repel people from actually kind of trying to learn about an issue or, or think about change. Um, you know, there are lots of really wonderful TV shows that are coming out. Safe Home on SBS was really great. Um, you know, there are lots of plays on at the moment as well and work, like Susie Miller, who's a fantastic playwright as well, has had Prima Facie um, on all oh, around the world. Oh, my God, that's an, what a play is that? 
Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that play has actually led to, um, you know, change within the legal system in regard to how victim survivors are, are treated when they're put through um, those those systems. So, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, I know I can't change the world if I'm playing, <laughs> like, in a night, but... I uh, really hope that it offers a place for, um, you know, people to be seen, for discussions to take place. Also, it's theatre. So, um, you know, I, I do promise you a good night out as well. Um, you know, there there are laughs. It's said in real life. So, you know, there is always a balance between, like, humour and heartache in life. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some, some good laughs and some good times to be had as well. Well, I went to uh, that theatre at uh, Northcote Town Hall uh, a couple of weeks ago and it's incredibly intimate and uh, fabulous uh, place to experience the play. Yeah, it's wonderful. And the um, the whole team there have been really wonderful in supporting this work. They, they helped us out uh, last year with um, development support as well. So um, they've kind of been a part of the journey of this work, which is actually really lovely and sometimes feels a little bit rare as an independent um, artist to, to have that ongoing support through um, an organisation. Um, so, yeah, really, really chuffed that our, our theatrical home is with Darabin and we can, um, we can premiere that work with them as well. And the space looks great. We've been doing bump-in this week and... Um, so all the, the set's gone in and the lighting's getting tweaked and the sound designer's coming in and um, all the elements are coming together. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really great. That's really exciting. Uh, I mean, I feel excited for you. <laughs> 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 um, I've noticed that uh, you've had a lot... I mean, you're a, a relatively young person, but uh, you're obviously a gun creative person because you've... Uh, Focused on playwriting, but you've uh, done adaptations as well as uh, done a short film, right? That are, so what I want to know is, tell me about writing a play and making it 3D versus uh, doing a film script and making a film. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I, the film script was my first kind of like... Uh, experiment like into figuring out you know what writing is because prior to that um I'd, I'd studied um uh to be an actor <laughs> um I think in the country well that's not a bad that's time. not a bad idea really no no it's not I mean if you can you know if you can reach that top tier where you're winning Oscars and, <laughs> and making a lot of money that, that's a fun life I imagine um so I originally studied to be an actor but I think, um, you know, I just, I love stories and I just have a curiosity for like trying to figure out the world, but also like the, the practicalities of how to kind of tell stories. And so, um, yeah, so I, I wrote a short film script, um, which was my first kind of, uh, go at, at writing something. And I think, I think the main difference and I think why I enjoy maybe theatre a little bit more is, um, and some people might actually enjoy this about film, but you have a lot of uh, control over um, how someone views the work when it comes to film. Like the camera is very much showing you like where your eye needs to focus, what you need to look at. It's really feeding you very specific information. Where in theatre, you've got, you know, the whole the whole picture is in front of you and it's kind of up to you and I guess 
you know, your kind of um, whatever life experiences and baggage or whatever that is, um, yeah. when you're sitting in, in a theatre space, like you're going to lean in or lean out to certain things or be attracted to certain things more than others. So I think there's a bit of freedom um, for the influence yeah, for the audience to kind of play and build a, build a world in their imagination as well because, you know, often in theatre, you know, you have to use a little bit of your imagination and you're asked to kind of uh, suspend your disbelief a little bit. So. Yeah, it's more provocative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating, which is actually takes us uh, full circle to our original discussion about being from the country and looking in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's quite curious. Um, So um, it's going to start on Thursday, the 10th of... Sorry, tell us about the performances. I was reading it and then I realised it's actually there's more to it. Yeah, no, so um, the season opens on uh, Wednesday the 9th, so that's when we preview, and so we open on Thursday the 10th, and that runs until the 20th, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, but there's going to be a couple of things, like you're going to do a post-show talk on Sunday the 13th of August at 5pm, and that's important, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so the, the show is at 5pm, um, and so after the show... Um, uh, myself, the director, Alice Darling, um, the performer, Louisa Mignoni, and um, I'm not sure who else yet of our, of our team, but uh, the three of us will definitely be there to, I guess, um, just, yeah, we're just trying to offer um, the opportunity to, um, I guess, open open up a, a space for questions and thoughts and conversations um, about about the work, um, you can ask about our process as well because um, this work has kind of been in development for uh, almost three years and I've been working quite closely with Alice and Lou over this time so it's been a very collaborative approach to the, the making of the work. Um, so, yeah, happy to, to field any questions that people have. Oh, that's really fascinating. Um, and then on Sunday, the 13th of August is going to be, oh, no, sorry, the 17th of August is going to be an Auslan interpreted performance, just so people know that. Yeah, yeah. Darabin Arts are really great um, in helping independent artists um, with providing different access points for their work as well, because sometimes, you know, the cost of that can be a bit of a barrier with the budgets that we work with. So it's really fantastic that Darabin are really passionate about um, accessibility um, for for people in their communities. I, I didn't ask you. I'm now that it, we're coming to the end. I'd, I'd really like to know what it's like to be the playwright collaborating with the director and collaborating with the single performer. That's a really fascinating idea. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, it's been really lovely because I guess um, you know the play. Originally, we're seeded out of um, a real-life experience for myself. So, um, you know, the fence did come down between myself and my neighbour. Um, there were things that were kind of like uh, that I heard. Um, so I guess in part of the creative process, I did want to, like I didn't want to just make it, you know, just my story on stage. I wanted to do a lot of research into, um, you know, family violence and what that looks like. Um, for both a witness or and a victim survivor, and so bringing um, you know people into that creative process early on, um, especially you know 
women and also Alice is a mother as well, like myself. So, you know, we could, we, yeah, we were able to kind of, I guess, um, even though I had to write the work, <laughs> it was lovely to have um, other people to kind of, you know, share those discussions with and, you know, get on the floor and just play and try and figure things out together. Because I guess writing is, um, you're quite, you're alone a lot of the time, so yeah. <laughs> um, it is it is nice to get out of your study and uh, be with people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so mm. that was yeah, that was really great. Thanks very much for talking to us this morning, Fleur. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Fleur Murphy and her play The Fence is going to be on at the Northcote Town Hall. It's a really lovely theatre and it starts, there's going to be a preview performance Wednesday the 9th of August at 7.30pm and it's opening night Thursday the 10th of August, 7.30pm, various performances up to the 20th of August. You're on 3CR with Annie. Hey, listen, about that time I wore your favourite pair of shoes when we went out one night. Then I took them off and left them in the toilets and went home in just my tights. That wasn't right. And those days were strange. They're not so far A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the threat of giving the Terra Nullius non-people a voice 
was exacerbated by a further threat, a treaty dividing the country even further on racial grounds, so logically expressed by the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit parties, verified conclusively by the incisive minds of the Lord Rupert of Wapping News, very limited lackeys, or sorry, journalists, who know we can't have a racial divide with a race that doesn't exist, with non-land, non-people. And that's one of the problems with not having nearly enough detail about this voice thing. And indeed, never able to have nearly enough detail about this voice thing, which runs the risk of implying the non-people might just be people after all. And as for a treaty, we have absolutely no detail. Deputy caring business class Supremo Susan Lees and Dregs expressed her concern by an interviewer suggesting we are talking about the voice thing and not the treaty thing, while Susan picked up the red herring that fell out of her handbag. And, and are all things to all arch-conservative people Supremo and would-be big Supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, bemoaned he could not attend Gama because... They, you know, might say, you know, like hurtful things, so I can't uh, gama gama like. And there's nothing worse than hearing hurtful things from people who don't exist. And there's a lot of non-existent non-people at gama. And, and it's a sad reflection on the racial divide these people want to bring to our homogenous no racial divide in the slightest nation that the entire coalition front bench feels it cannot attend Gama when all it wants is a sensible debate and vital detail, detail, detail. But how can you have a sensible debate with terrenalious non-people and a government whose detail is never enough detail? Global economic giant PwC, for pricks with confidentiality, was forced to comply with a tax practitioner's board order that it train its staff in honesty. Indeed, honesty, integrity, and keeping client information confidential. And I'm sure we could all spot the big problem here, because obviously it couldn't be in-house training. None of them would have the slightest idea about the subject matter. They'd have to commission an outside consultant. And then we thought, but, but, but they'd be hard-pressed to find any consultant who also knows anything about honesty and integrity. So, not sure how they circumnavigated that dilemma. To do to death an analogy we've thrown up a few times lately, it's like asking a snake not to be a snake. No connection, of course, but a mortgage broker reported this week the big four banks had increased their interest rates for new customers over and above the rate increases announced by the Reserve Losses Bank. And obviously you've done the same, over and above with the interest you pay depositors. Of course not, but, but to balance the books, we have reduced those rates in proportion to the increased rates we charge at the other end. But, but, but why would you do that? We call it the big C. Uh, oh, so obviously you, you know it's ripping off. Uh, you mean cheating. Of course not. Capitalism, silly capitalism, business, good business. What universe have you been living in? Oh, and naturally, we'll have to extract our interviewing a banker fee from you, and you came in the front door, so you're also up for our walking past the door fee. I, I hope you've got enough in your account, or, or we'll have to take further action. C for cheating. What, what nonsense. Sadly, I am now subject to uh, further action.
The Your Money Bank is running these ads telling us if we've got the odd financial problem like not nearly enough of the hard-earned, they understand and can help us, which, given the only logical solution is having more money, I'm having a bit of trouble working out how they can help us. They're certainly not helping the borrowers they're ripping off on one hand and the depositors they're ripping off on the other. So we presume the ads have nothing to do with them. In, in other words, nothing to do with their customers. Fossil giant Woodside with Profits celebrated its contribution to world record climate extremes across the globe. As a report showed, heat killed 61,000 people across Europe alone last year and this year is even more unbearable, celebrated its contribution by threatening to sue long-haired commie greenies who released a stink bomb, a stink bomb, listener, in its Perth offices, criminals polluting its controlled atmosphere. The good corporate citizen claiming loss of the profits that come from its contribution to creating climate records. Some cynics might gasp at the arrogance of a major contributor to the destruction of the planet, suing those trying to prevent that destruction by tossing a symbolic stink bomb. Worse, a few days later, turning up outside Woodside with Supremo Mego Neil before Prophet's home, her sacred domain, and waking up the whole family, waking them up, noise pollution, shame. Western true blue Aussie supremo Roger Cook, the planet, expressed it beautifully, calling these trying to prevent that destruction extremists terrorising poor Meg's family and telling us gas is good for us and for Western true blue Aussie, and he can't understand why a great corporate like Woodside with is a constant target of extremists who oppose climate change. It is hard to understand, isn't it? We say top marks would side with for sensitivity and relativity. Sue them for all their worth, which we suspect is not a hell of a lot. And as coal prices soar and the New South Wales government is contemplating a super-duper obscene profits royalty increase, coal behemoth Glen Rotten to the core warned it against a, quote, revenue grab. Selfish, selfish government which will put investment and associated jobs at risk. What a caring, caring company. And the extremes across the globe show just how badly Mother Earth needs more and more investment in coal. Newspaper ad appeared this week for mob called Slater Burn Your Money, telling us just how wonderful they are at their line of business, which happens to be that most esteemed of occupations, debt collection. No collection, no commission, it advertises. We take the stress out of debt collection. Now we can be assured that wouldn't apply to the poor bastards they're chasing for the debt. Helping businesses for over 12 years and still going strong. 12 years. Wow. Seriously, I think we all owe our friendly debt collectors a debt for the invaluable role they play in the greatest little economic order of them all and their admirable courage, because everyone hates their guts. Thankfully, everyone loves caring employers, and the most pertinent and timely warnings this week came from our old mate industry profits group Supremo Innes will cost the workers, who sensibly dismiss socialist planned caring business class relations changes as slogans and myths, which worse, will do nothing to lift all important productivity. 
productivity, productivity. See, it is hates, slogans and myths. The system is built on conflict, he saged, and caring employers know there is no conflict between caring employers and the lazy avaricious workers they so care about. Because unlike workers and evil unions, they know there is no such thing as class struggle. So obviously, just an inadvertent oversight caused by the complication of awards, which it has also condemned this week, that Woolworths Trillions has been charged with underpaying 1,235 former workers their long service entitlements. Huge fines involved, but Innes's Victorian Industry Profits Group counterpart, Tim Papermoney, said the law needs to be careful about overreach here, that the bar for criminal action should be high. Good point, Tim. 1,235 workers, more than a million dollars stolen, or sorry, inadvertently, of course. Uh, so just clarify, Tim, how high should the bar be? After real-life train killer games showed yet again that train killing means train killing, our Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Richard Malls, the bad guys, said they died making a difference. And I'm sure we all thought, uh... What difference? Real-life train killer games, training to kill whoever our fatherland, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, orders us to hate and kill. The only difference I could determine was they went from being alive to being dead. As the train killing practice continued, our close, close, close relationship with the U.S. OB was typified by U.S. OB Secretary for being offensive and train killing Lloyd Austin, our pocket who described the relationship as, True Blue Wesley is on side with us. See a good, loyal lackey. And we'll remain a close, 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 good, loyal lackey as long as we stay on side with the US of. And right now, there's not the slightest risk of not being a good, loyal lackey with our relevant acolytes from Big Supremo, Anthony, Albing Uzi, down, tongues coated in brown and black from licking the red, white and blue, while as the sundry ministers and secretaries for war and going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, got together to talk a bit of train killing and slaughter, the secretary for US of World State, blank in the head, said true blue was he must understand the sensitivities of the US of over Julian Assange. A miracle in itself. It means one of the two Blue Aussies whipped up the courage to mention Julian Assange. Must understand the sensitivities of the US of. You must understand, he explained. We are sensitive to our war crimes being exposed. Like our very, very, very close friend being the only warmonger to drop nuclear weapons on civilian populations, commemorated this weekend on Hiroshima Day. Good morning. Hi, we're from Fitzroy Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Long ago a land was built to be a shining city on a hill. Kings, no aristocracy, just a belief in liberty and the t- 
tale that they were told in school Always follow this golden rule George Washington and the cherry tree Truth will set the people free But the truth is hard to take When your livelihood's at stake Better cover your mistakes And the buck doesn't stop you no more Buck doesn't stop you no more So all the people saw That no one was above the law They took pride in their democracy All were equal eventually And some folk didn't like the way While their views were truly noted Come election time they were outvoted So they used intimidation To preserve their dominance Stop no more But doesn't stop you no more If they're God and they can't What are they fighting for? An all-American Sharia law If the Bible is the source of sovereignty If history teaches us one thing Never trust a man who would be king Who seeks all power for himself To burnish his prestige and wealth And a nation
Hiroshima Day Rally for Peace and Against Nuclear Submarines, AUKUS and War. Nationwide commemorations and events will be held on the 78th anniversary of the US dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Join millions of people across the world in sending a powerful message, never again. On Sunday, 6th of August at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. For more information, you can visit the Facebook page No AUKUS Coalition Vic, a 3CR supporter. And we've got Shirley Winton from No AUKUS Coalition Victoria on the line. G'day, Shirley. How are you? Uh, good morning, Annie. Yes, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, the uh, 78th anniversary of the US dropping of nuclear bombs in Australia is cozying up to the US. It's all rather uh, frightening. It certainly is. It's, um, particularly, I think, this year over the last few years, but this year, um, after the Osman, the Australian Imperial Pink, which has incredibly accelerated the militarisation, uh, US militarisation of Australia and, and the Pacific, um, it is the Hiroshima and Nagasaki are sobering. Uh, a sobering reminder that uh, we must stop the march to war. That it's in the hands of the people now, um, and we must. And the potential for nuclear war is, is growing. Um, you know, we're talking about now the uh, Australia being visited by nu- not just nuclear-powered submarines, but also warships uh, carrying potentially carrying nuclear. Nuclear weapons, the B-52 bombers, the US B-52 bombers, with uh, I think there's six or eight of them that are going to be based uh, in Northern Territory, outside Darwin, um, also potentially carrying the uh, carrying nuclear weapons. And this is at a time when um, when our foreign minister um, Penny Wong has said that she respects uh, the US policy of neither confirming nor denying. Whether they're whether they war, um, you know, um, whether their ships, warships, and um, planes um, are carrying nuclear weapons um, in sovereign, so-called sovereign countries. So um, I think it is it is really timely to mobilise um, against AUKUS and against nuclear submarines and to demand the Australian government to to be, you know, to defend our sovereignty. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, they made the announcement, it was a Morrison announcement uh, about AUKUS. It's uh, the uh, Albanese government's completely in lockstep. Uh, People went to the election, I'm sure, with uh, a hope that this would actually not happen. Uh, Now we're getting further announcements that uh, deals are being made to use Perth as a parking spot for American nuclear subs and UK subs uh, uh, as early as uh, 2027, very, very soon, in fact. Yeah, well, that's that's right, and that's where where it's been a surprise to many people, a big surprise. That a Labor government would um, would follow the the you know the psychophantic Liberal government, uh, previous government. Um, so subservient to the US, that the Labor government would um, would show a little bit more of a backbone in standing up to the US, in showing a bit of sovereignty. Um, 
this has really nothing to do with defence of you know security of Australia's people. The 368 billion spent on nuclear stuff, and I must remind people that that's 368 billion. That's that's going to blow out extraordinary and be over half a trillion. So we will be basically spending on making Australia a. Um, uh, we're already making Australia a a um, a US military base and a. Uh, and are looking at for U.S. war. Um, it's locking Australia into into a war, into a war between basically U.S. and China. Um, and it, it is, as I said, um, there's a lot of people who are, you know, really quite shocked that a Labor government would go all all the way with the USA, um, as we had during during the Vietnam War. We had a bit all the way with LBJ. So now we've that have revived the, the slogan of all the way with um, USA. And the Labor government is, in fact, is, um, is so tied into the into US military in enforcing and, you know, upholding what, what's called the US uh, rules-based order, the US global rules-based order, which has nothing to do with promoting peace. It's all about maintaining your supremacy around the world. And in our region, um, uh, the role of Australia is now becoming a, well, still is, but even more so as a deputy sheriff, imposing and enforcing that US rules-based order. Um, so it, it is, you know, there are a lot of people that are obviously very surprised by it. But, you know, the... The other side of it is that it has a real outcry. So there's more and more AOP rank and file members. There's people in the community, in unions, uh, passing motions, coming out and condemning authors and nuclear submarines, which are going to tie us into the US um, foreign policy. So, look, I should say the other thing that this is all, all exposes is the level and the extent of the, of you know, of US embedded in Australia politically and ideologically, economically and militarily. So um, you know, the, 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 some you know, over the years, people have said Australia is a 51st state of the US. Well, certainly it's now becoming one now. Yeah, so, it's, it's um, really, really quite disturbing that um, there is so little. Uh, public access to this decision making. Uh, I mean, people are, like you say, being, I mean, Australia is being forcibly uh, locked down to generations of um, kowtowing to the Americans who, I mean, really, the track record isn't very good with uh, for uh, the American decision making when it goes into wars. It's really about large business creating the uh, uh, environment for perpetual war, which is a very science fiction story um, storyline, isn't it? Perpetual war. Well, that's right. And, and who are the, you know, who are the beneficiaries um, of, of this, of the enormous militarisation of, of wars? It's the weapons manufacturers, like never, like never before. And I think one of these dark examples is the militarisation of education in Australia, where you've got Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, um, 
Hollyburn BAE, who are who are now embedded in Australian universities, who in Australian universities are now dependent on the funding from these multinational weapons corporations. So the research that that you know there's no independent research. There's the the indoctrination into our education system, into our education system, is so extensive. But it, ex- it extends beyond the universities. Now, the, this multinational weapons corporations, and most of them are, you know, multi, uh, US and British, um, they're now in, they're now in, in um, jointly with the support of the education departments around the country, are running programs and programs that are initiated by the weapons corporations, and they're doing it under under the STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and now we're saying the end is standing for military. So that, for instance, in primary and secondary schools now, um, there's a program under STEM where students are being asked to design nuclear-propelled submarines, and um, and the, you know, and it's in, it's designed in a form of competition and prizes. Yeah, normalisation. Normalisation. It's the propaganda. And, and as you said earlier, what is really shocking is, 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 is the role of the, of the media. You don't hear the voices in mainstream media, not even a, you know, not even like a whisper of questioning the awkward, the deep implications about our sovereignty the deep implications about war. Uh, you don't hear any whispers in the mainstream media. Or in, you know, so it is, it is, it is turning Australia into, into a 51st state, and there's no questioning. But the interesting thing is that there was a um, poll uh, by um, uh, Deloitte Institute a few months ago which asked, uh, the question was whether the, whether people would support Australia allying itself with China or with Russia in the event of war, or to remain neutral. The majority, over 50, 50%, I think there were about 54%, have said that they want Australia to, make, to remain neutral if there is a war. And 70, at least 70% of women said they want Australia to remain neutral. And the majority of young people who were polled said also said they want Australia to remain neutral. And then when you sort of think about the, the massive propaganda, you know, the carpet bombing in, that's going on now in our media and everywhere, that you have that response, I, I think it's really hopeful. And, um, and in, in the sense that, you know, there is a real... There's a sense that people don't want to go into another war with the U.S., well, you know, anybody with half a brain would know that uh, uh, the um, generational trauma of, of a war is just so extreme for ordinary people and uh, workers are the ones who go and die. Um, none of the people in their plush seats. But uh, you've recently been communicating with people from New Zealand and getting a perspective from outside Australia of uh, what people are thinking about Australia's move towards nuclear uh, nirvana. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting. We invited a couple of us from ICANN. We were invited to speak at a, at a webinar 
uh, that was being run last Sunday um, by uh, peace activists in New Zealand. Um, and that were, it was, and the purpose of the webinar was to exchange, um, you know, knowledge about, about the peace movement, the anti-war, the anti-imperialist movement in both countries. And, you know, we, we gave quite long talks. I think between the two of us, there was 45 minutes uh, that we described the situation in Australia. And they were really shocked. The New, uh, the New Zealand um, activists were really shocked at that, the level of the penetration of the US. And what shocked them even more was that there was so little resistance to it. They have a history, you know, that they kept asking us and saying, well, what about, what about you know, our class? And we said, well, they are, they are there. People are really angry. But it's all been muzzled. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, the, the, the intensity of the propaganda is so huge that it's hard to get the voices out, the people's voices out. And that was one of the reasons why IPAN, in, in Independent Peaceful Australia Network, we did a, um, a, a people, people's inquiry into the US-Australia line. And that was important. And we should need to continue finding ways to, um, to, to give platform to people's voices. And that's why 3CR is important. Going back to New Zealand, though, um, they have, interestingly, they have a strong sense of that sovereignty about their country. Um, and it probably goes back 50 years ago when they banned nuclear, nuclear ships uh, visiting New Zealand. And also they, um, they campaigned really hard. It was an intense campaign for nuclear free New Zealand. And they won. And through that campaign... The, the consciousness about independence and sovereignty and about the people of, the, of New Zealand making the decision about, you know, what a, um, New Zealand's foreign policy should be and whether they should be new and who should, whether they should have nuclear submarines and nuclear weapons um, in any way based in their country. But New Zealand is part of the five eyes. That's the only part of the foreign policy that that's tied to the US and tied to what they call imperialism. But I think even more significant in New Zealand is the Maori Party. And the Maori Party is quite vocal. And they said, you know, they've got elections coming up in October. And the Maori Party has come up with a very strong policy um, of opposing Maori um, New Zealand or Aotearoa um, to be part of any war alliance, to be part of the American War Alliance. And um, they've said in, in some of the uh, literature, they've said or they've come out the, uh, the co-leader, the, the Bibi Nagara Packer, um, said, look, I'm quoting her here, we will no longer be a political football in the wars of imperial powers. We will no longer act as a Pacific spy base for five eyes. We have determined a Maori-centric foreign policy and a Maori-centric defence policy shaped for us and by us without selling our trading, our mama, but just simply asserting it. So and then she goes on and says, the time for war, killing and imperialism is over. So um, a Maori's make a significant chunk of the New Zealand military as well. So the Maori party has said that... Um, it's likely that the result of the elections is going to be a coalition. They said that they will support the coalition or whichever party wins, only if that party accepts their policy 
on independence and sovereignty, and that that would not be part of of you know of of the U.S. or any foreign power military uh, agenda. And also, they're opposed to Five Eyes, and as you know, the Five Eyes Alliance. That's a very significant um, um, instrument used by the by the U.S. Yeah, yeah, it it uh, fuses Australian foreign policy, in inverted commas, with the American agenda. We're, I mean, we're just an adjunct of their foreign policy. Oh, that's right, and I and I think that this, the developments in Mary in um, New Zealand, Aotearoa, are very significant, and uh, the Maori Party has a very strong following, apparently, um, and that you know that for us to watch and to learn. Well, well, you know, the thing about it is Australia's actions in this area, uh, I mean, I didn't mean foreign policy, I mean uh, defence policy. It effectively has an effect on the foreign policy and our role in the Pacific is um, is offset by this kowtowing to the Americans' war machine. Yeah, well, yeah, there's, there's also... It sort of makes me think that it's actually implement, basically implementing um, the, the U.S. defence foreign policy in Asia-Pacific. Australia has now decided, clearly decided, that it's uh, tying itself into the U.S. rules-based global order, you know? And, and it's is there any difference in the Australian foreign policy to America's foreign policy or defence? There's none. None was heard in that. Julian Assange is just one, you know, stark example. Yeah, he's um, the he's the canary in the in the uh, mine, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. that's really well put. That's really well put on it. Mm. And our defence is so military, is so integrated, uh, and and enmeshed in the US defence and our foreign policies. And dressed up as, as yeah, and dressed up as defending Australia. That it's about defending Australia, but of course it's not. None of these uh, missiles or any of these things are actually uh, around uh, defending a, a country. They're about attacking. But um, we'll all have to be there tomorrow, won't we? Well, yeah, that's right. But I have just just the one one thing that I do want to add. I know we're running out of time. Is that. Um, there are talks about developing a, a, a nuclear-free and peaceful Asia-Pacific. So we are having discussions with New Zealand, with people in South Korea, people in uh, Guam in, um, and, and in, in Japan, uh, Okinawa. So I think that, that's a really positive movement that will develop. As far as tomorrow, it's really important to, you know, to launch off you know, a response. This is a people's response to to the deep integration of Australia into the, you know, into wars and military. And so our speakers are going to be Margie Beavers. Um, Dave, people know Margie, she's from Medical Association for Prevention of War. David Ball, who's our Deputy Assistant Secretary of the MUA. Jack Howell from Labor Against War. And I think there's real significant events, as people know, are happening in in the Labor Party. I think there's a... You have to get a wriggle on. We've got minutes to go. Okay. Janet Rice, Xavier Dupay, who's the National Union of Students and the South Korean Trade Unionist and Peace Activist. And it's at 1 o'clock, and please come, bring your friends. Bring State family, Library. State Library. Um, Refrap Band will be there, and so will the Peace, and we will be marching. Thanks Thank very you. much, Shirley. Thank you, Annie. Yeah.
uh, we really are up against the line. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with, because I listened to it the other day, and it's absolutely gripping song. Tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grassland for many years. The Victorian serrated tussock working party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.